Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you are into hunting, fishing, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. All right, today with me, I have Jaden Bales from Hunt West. Jaden is the owner and founder of 2% Certified Hunt West. And what Hunt West is, is essentially, um, it is a resource for for, for hunters um, to help them be more prepared on their hunts. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, strategy for drawing a unit or anything like that. I mean, while Jaden is is certainly willing to help you with that, where his, excuse me, expertise comes in is once you have your tag in hand and you you know what unit you're going to be hunting in, Jaden helps you put a game plan together for that specific unit. And he, he factors in a lot of different things. And, and one of the big things that, um, that he is really keen on is listening to the hunter, um, understanding what type of hunt they're looking to, to get into, uh, the way that they like to hunt, whether they're coming from, uh, you know, the Midwest or out East or whether they, you know, are in the West there now. Um, he takes all these things into account and, and helps you put together a game plan to essentially help you be as successful as possible uh, during your hunt. Not only do we kind of get into the the nuts and bolts of, of Hunt West and really all that, that Jaden has to offer, um, we get to spend some time talking about his upbringing in Oregon, you know, what the outdoors looked like to him at a young age. I mean, he, he started very early with his dad and his grandpa, um, has a tremendous tremendous story um that we just kind of happened upon uh it was one of those things that 
Jade and I were talking after we got done recording and he was like, how did, did you know about that story? Like it just, it, it kind of teed itself up perfectly um, throughout the course of the conversation. So it's, it's, it's a really crazy story. Uh, I'm glad that, that he was able to share that. Uh, we talk about what Jaden does uh, in his nine to five working for uh, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, as well as why conservation is so important to him outside of that. Um, you know, being a, a 2% certified brand, uh, it seems fairly obvious that conservation um, plays a pivotal role in Hunt West, uh, but Jaden does a, a good job of explaining why that is. So uh, this was uh, a fantastic episode. Um, Jaden was a great guest, and we kind of teased it a little bit at the end, but um, Jaden has a big hunt coming up this fall, and uh, we're hoping to get him back on after that hunt and, and kind of recap everything and, and really dive into it um, a bit more. I think it'll be uh, a great episode. So episode 150 with Jaden Bales. Enjoy, guys. Jaden Bales, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you tonight? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good. We, uh, we got through some technical difficulties without uh, too much... Um, stress i guess we, we kind of we worked through it here but uh no man i'm excited to do this we put this together in pretty short order uh, i think i reached out to you maybe late last week um <clears throat> and we were able to to make it happen yeah i appreciate you having me on man this is a great podcast you have here it's been going for a long time you said this is episode 150 right so yeah anything anything past like 100 is just gravy i mean there's not a lot of podcasts that make it um for that long so good good on you Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, next month will be three years that I've been doing this. And I missed a few episodes or a few weeks, I guess, earlier this year. Uh, just I was bad at scheduling. And then I had just a bunch of stuff outside of the podcast uh, that was kind of taking my attention away. Uh, but yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to not miss too many episodes or too many weeks over the years. And I think uh the fact that we're at episode 150 is a, is a testament to the guests because I have, man, outside of my mom, I don't know who could listen to me for 150 <laughs> episodes, man. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and even funny. that, she'd get tired of it. She's just doing it because, you know, it's your mom, right? So oh, that's great. Jaden, you are the owner of a uh, fairly new um, 2% certified Hunt West. Before we get into that, man, tell the listeners a bit about yourself. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so I grew up in Northeast Oregon uh, to a single mom who worked in the ER. And um, the while she was there, we were out at the farm uh, where grandpa and grandma um, ran the family farm and business. And um, so I'd like to say, you know, I grew up on that on that place, that farm and ranch. Uh, and um, boy, we just my brother and I, we spent all of our childhoods uh doing all the hunting and fishing and, and mischievousness that anybody in the real West would want to get into. Um, so after, you know, going to college and, um, going, going away for a while, I, I followed a gal to Wyoming actually. And while her and I's relationship didn't work out, uh, I stayed here and, um, I now, uh, for my full-time job work for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation and as my side project, um, and, uh, I'm, very heavily dedicated to, uh, my hunt West project. So, um, that's something else I, I do. And, um, I really, you know, from the get go have been kind of tied into the conservation world. Grandpa was really, uh, 
strong into supporting uh, the Ducks Unlimited chapter, and he actually sold some grass seed or, or donated grass seed um, to the Ducks Unlimited chapter and was involved in habitat restoration there. So it's been something that I've been kind of involved in as far as you know conservation is concerned um, and uh, hunting is concerned since I was a little kid. So um, that's kind of the, the quick and dirty overview. Um, and, uh, man, it is just – you know, hunting and conservation have ended up just being like what I'm addicted to talking about, what I'm like really just knee deep in every single day. Um, and I really love it. It's a, it's a good way for me. It's been a really good way to shape my career and my passions in one. Yeah. Well, you, you're in a unique position too, because there's not a lot of individuals out there that can say that they make a living out of conservation, right? And mm-hmm. working for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. I mean, that's that's what you're doing day in and day out. And then <clears throat> for a lot of people, you think that, you know, it's sometimes it, it well, it's it's easy to separate, you know, the hobbies and the things you like to do outside of work with work, because usually they're usually they're different to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're, you're working on, you know, legislation, you know, all these things throughout the course of, of a regular day, a regular year. And on top of that, you're spending all your free time in the outdoors talking about it, coming on podcasts like this and talking about it. So no, kudos to you, man, because I feel like there's a lot of people out there that would really uh, be envious of the position that you're in. I appreciate that, but man, there certainly is, you know, there's that old saying, it's like, do what you love. You'll never work in a day in your life. And I'm not so sure that's fully accurate because there's a lot of things just like to make ends meet that you have to do that aren't always the most fun. And inherently, if you're working in a hobby space, like the income that's coming from that hobby space is generally lower than if you're going to do something that yeah. most folks don't enjoy doing. So yeah. there's always trade-offs and there's trade-offs to every every career and hobby decision you make. Um but, um, you know, you, you make the bed you live in and, and you really uh, make the best of every situation. And like you said, I just I'm really uh, appreciative of all the opportunities that have been afforded to me. And largely it's, that's been from people who've kind of opened the door for me um, and, and mentors who have kind of showed me the way. And then I've been able to kind of follow along in their footsteps. And um, um, in particular, like I started my like entry into the quote unquote outdoor industry by helping out my buddy Cody Rich um, with his podcast. And then I worked for him for a while and I'm still working with him on some projects. And, um, you know, those kinds of things are really important to acknowledge because you don't just get there by yourself and into these, especially into these, like you say, like hobby industries, um, because it's tough. Everyone is really interested in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just, it is, uh, that's one thing that I've learned over the course of doing this podcast. And I would say like, I, I'm like adjacent to the outdoor industry, right? Like I'm outdoor <laughs> industry adjacent. Just, I mean, I have a podcast that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, certainly focuses on conservation. I talk to a lot of people who are passionate about the outdoors. Uh, I have a brand that sells, you know, lifestyle apparel that's geared towards, you know, the outdoorsman, the outdoors woman, what have you. But I'm not like, in like the trenches, so to speak, like I'm not kind of involved in it day in and day out. How did you find yourself working for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation? 
my Wyoming Wildlife Federation career actually started as a volunteer. Okay. <laughs> so um, it kind of goes back to that thing where I was telling you we were involved with Ducks Unlimited as a kid. And then I became involved with the National Wild Turkey Federation and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And I was, I'm like kind of a generalist outdoorsman in a lot of ways. And uh, I moved to Wyoming and was like, God, what is this? Like, I want to be involved as a volunteer for something that does all the outdoorsman things. You know, I yeah. hunt and I fish and I hunt a lot of different species and I fish a bunch of different types of fish, you know, and I fly fish, I spin bob fish, like all the things. And Wyoming Wildlife Federation kind of covers all those avenues, but just on a statewide level, because I, I think at some level you do kind of have to narrow down in some way. Yeah. Um, and so I started volunteering as an ambassador and, um, that was when I was living in Laramie. And then, um, this opportunity came up when a communications role opened up and, uh, I decided I really wanted to live here in Lander where I'm at now. Uh, just had like a really interesting combination of like a decent enough size town that like there's a good community and stuff going on, but it is, I mean, right next to the mountains. It's right next to some real wild places. Um, I think that, uh, we were talking earlier and I killed an elk in my back pasture, uh, of the landlord's place I'm living on. And I think I completed like the big five big game species within 30 minutes of my house or something. Like, oh, geez. It's been really, it's been really fortunate and like really blessed living to live here. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of how, you know, I saw, like I said, I saw that job opportunity with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation in this particular place in Lynn Lander and, and knew that that was um, something I wanted to do because I'd been volunteering in that space for a while. So you said you're working in communications. Was that kind of like what your background was? Is that what you went to school for was, you know, marketing or communications, stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, it actually is. I know a lot of people who went to college and don't work in the stuff that they learned, but yeah, um, yeah, that, I, I'm pretty fortunate that I've kind of followed that career path. And, um, you know, I got a business degree kind of more generally with a focus in marketing. Um, but like last week we just had a meeting internally at, uh, at work of like some stuff that I actually learned and I knew something about that was from college. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that, that that's necessarily the route for everybody is to just go, go to college, get a general studies degree or whatever, and then figure it out. But, um, it's pretty cool that, that at least in today's day and age, um, I'm using parts of my degree. Like I said, it's not for everybody, but um, it's part of my job. Yeah, makes that student loan pay payment a little bit easier to make, right? When you're yeah. actually in your chosen field. Yeah, absolutely. So growing up in Oregon, and you know, it sounds like maybe Grandpa was the one that kind of really got you into to hunting and fishing and things like that what did what did that look like was he a big outdoorsman too i mean i know you said he was um he was involved with ducks unlimited but was that something where he was like all right Jaden, like we're gonna you know go do this and then he just like it just kind of snowballed over time i i'd say so my dad i didn't live with my dad but every other weekend we'd visit him and uh and every other weekend in this in the fall we'd be hunting okay. and on the weekends i wasn't at my dad's hunting we were at grandpa's hunting. So okay. it was, it came from both sides. Um, and you know, like my dad was really big into waterfowling and we'd go turkey hunting and then he was big into big game hunting too. And, um, the nice thing about the farm was like with some acreage also with really good neighbors who you knew, like you could kind of link together acreage to hunt. Right. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like I, I had to go over a big learning curve when I left the farm 
and I didn't have places to hunt anymore. Um, because we would, I would call up, you know, when I was a teenager in junior high, I would call up all the different landowners that were next to us. And I had like eight miles of Creek bottom that I could hunt for, oh, for coyotes <laughs> or for some waterfowl or deer or whatever. Right. It was super fun. Um, and when I left that space, I had to do a lot of learning, um, because I didn't really know how to, how to find my own spots and stuff. And that kind of leads into the whole both Wyoming Wildlife Federation and, and Hunt West project I do now. Um, but like you were kind of alluding to it in the beginning of your question, yeah, grandpa had a huge impact on, on my development as an outdoorsman, but you know, my dad really did too. He's, he was probably more avid, um, than my grandpa. Uh, I just didn't get a, I wasn't living with him full time. So they both had a huge impact on me. Yeah. But what a way to, <clears throat> be able to spend that time with your dad, right? Like if it was yeah. every other weekend, but you knew you were in for some type of adventure every other weekend, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's not a bad way to live either. No, it was a blast. And I actually just went on an elk hunt two years ago with my dad uh, in Oregon again, and it was just a blast. Like we had such a good time. Um, and interestingly, like, and I think this was important and this was like kind of an interesting evolution. Like, at this point and at this stage in the game, I've got the physical ability to kind of go far and do whatever I want in the mountains. And dad is slowing down. And, um, you know, so we, my brother and I, we kind of catered the hunt to be um, suitable for him. But at the same time, we're just up there. We're only like, we're right above the road, walking up this little ridge, going really slow. Like my dad likes to hunt. And he looks over and he's like, go guys, I see an elk. And we're like, what? And look across the canyon and like 800 yards, there's a bedded elk across the canyon. I'm like, Dad, you can't even read your cell phone without your glasses. How are you spotting this elk, <laughs> you know? And uh, those are the kinds of like, I just love being out with my dad or my grandpa or whoever. People like that who um, just have instinct and they have like a really, uh, a really good knack for being in the woods and really good woodsmanship. And it's fun um, to, make those, to make those memories with those kinds of people too. Yeah, you bring you bring up a, an interesting point when it comes to like like dads, grandpas, uh -huh. whatever, right? It's that, <clears throat> yeah. Whenever I mean, I have like father in law. My my dad has passed, but like my father in law, um, and you see him like looking at their cell phone. They're like looking over the top of their glasses, and like some <laughs> for some reason they're like holding it like further away from their face instead of like up close. Yeah. But then yeah, you get him in the woods. You get him in a tree stand, a blind, whatever the case is, and yeah, they'll pick off like the slightest movement from you know across the field. And this is whitetail hunting in the Midwest, right? So it's not like you're, you know, glassing hundreds of hundreds of yards. I mean, you can, but it's not typically how it's done. And yeah, you just catch you know the flicker of a tail. You just see something that looks out of place, and you're like, oh, there's a deer. And it's it's just so impressive that that trained eye of of our uh, of our elders yeah and you can tell they're just in the zone they're yeah. just loving it you know like they're so tuned in yeah absolutely and you hardly ever see them like that you know if you're just sitting on the lazy boy at home with them so it's one of the it's one of my favorite parts about being in the woods with them and um i'm excited we just were talking on the phone the other day and i think it's important that uh that I value and, and that we do as, as you have your, your parents around or grandparents around to go hunting or do, go on these adventures with them. Um, it's important to like prioritize it. So, you know, next, uh, spring and about a year from now, we'll be looking at going on a bear hunt together. Uh, he's nice. like, 
you know, and, and it, he goes, you know, like, Hey, I want to go to this area. Like back in the day, like we used to go find bears here and yada, yada. And it wasn't the place that I had wanted to go, but I like realized I'm like, dude, are you going to want to go there by yourself? Or do you want to go like with your dad and like, just yeah. go have a good adventure. Right. Yeah. Um, those are the things I think, as I get a little bit older that, um, I'm starting to realize really matter. Yeah. It's <clears throat> cause yeah, I think about growing up and, you know, like I mentioned my dad passed and that was who, I mean, it was <clears throat> very close relationship. He was the one I did all my hunting with and, you know, taught me everything that I know, um, growing up. And yeah, I took, I, I, you know, like in hindsight and like when I reflect back on it, like I took so much of that shit for granted, right? Like you just always have someone that you can call and just like ask questions to about the outdoors, you know, whether it's like he was a big fly fisherman. So like just call and ask him like a random question about something. Right. And it's, it makes you do a lot more learning on your own. And like now as an adult, as a father with kids and looking forward to when they get a bit older and we can really start to enjoy this time in the woods, those, I would much prefer to have a hunt where I don't kill anything or don't really have any opportunities, but spend it with someone who I really enjoy being with, then, you know, maybe, you know, notching a tag for whatever animal it is. Um, because in 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, you're going to look back on the stories like, oh yeah, this one trip that dad and I went on, right? Like something inevitably went completely haywire, right? Yeah. And you're just going to have these great stories about it. And those are, those are the things that I love about the outdoors. And I think <clears throat> those are the things those moments are what the outdoors and what hunting are really all about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned like those moments that things go haywire and my dad, my brother and I were, um, on this elk camp and dad and Tyler, my brother, his name's Tyler. They had set up wall tents and they set up a cook, sh a cook shack on the one side of the wall tent before I got there. Cause I was driving from a ways and, um, Looked like a good spot. There's only like a, it was an old burn and there's like a three trees within like a hundred feet. Looked like a good place to be. And like this crazy windstorm came through in the middle of the night on the second or third night that we were there of a nine day hunt. And we're hearing trees break and stuff as we're going to bed. And I'm like, guys, should we be worried at all? And they're like, no, there's like, there's like three trees within a hundred yards. And I was like, okay, okay, you're right, you're right. And we all go to bed. And at like 11, we probably fall asleep at 9.30 or 10, 11.30 at night, all of a sudden the canvas is on top of my head and it sounds like lightning and thunder is like crashing down around us. And we're like, oh my God, is everyone awake? Is everyone okay? You know, we're like checking in on everybody. And <laughs> all of a sudden, like we realize, holy smokes, a tree just fell on our camp. The one of the three trees that was around just like broke off in the middle of the night and uh, in the middle of this windstorm and fell across our cook our cook shack broke all of our of our cooking equipment and our it destroyed the old igloo cooler that my dad brought and like um i remember vividly though and i took a video of this dad's rummaging through like you know after we'd already checked to make sure everybody was okay yeah. dad's rummaging through the the canvas and the tarp and like trying to see what's like still alive and he goes it's okay guys the course is saved. <laughs> and he holds it up. Just <laughs> the entire 36 rack of course is all good. Gotta uh, have priorities. Yeah. I know. 
but it was just, you know, and then we, we drove into town and got a, uh, my brother only lived like an hour and a half away. So we drove into town that night and slept at his place. But, um, yeah, like you said, those are the things that you remember, you know, you don't ever remember notching the tag as much as you do those kinds of things. Yeah. <clears throat> How did the tree manage to miss? Was it just the three of you in the tent? Mm-hmm. How did it manage to miss all of you guys? I don't know, man. Like I said, like I woke up, I had, I mean, the big, huge, loud crack of that tree breaking. And if anyone's heard a tree break in the middle of a windstorm, it is loud. Oh, yeah. It's like, it sounds like freaking thunder cracking right next to your ear. However, that thing cracked and I woke up and all of a sudden, like this canvas was over the top of my head and, um, the the there were limbs on top of me but like they didn't hurt me or anything it was just kind of like some of the the far extending limbs i it was a it was some miracle that none of us got hurt man um wow. so you talk about like a moment that brings people together um yeah chaos talking your yeah chaos your dad <laughs> your brother and you and um some you remember remember and 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 you know, like I said, build your relationship more than you ever could know. I got to imagine that ride back to town, despite <laughs> everything that happened, like there was probably a lot of laughs. Oh, I, I just, I got to believe there was. Yeah. I naturally laugh when I'm nervous. So it was, <laughs> there was a lot of giggles. Uh, you're exactly giggles. right though. Cause it's like, it's like, what else, what do you, what else do you do? You, you look at that situation and you just laugh. You're just like, I can't believe that that happened and that we're here right now. So yeah. No, that's 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 wild. I've I've not experienced anything even remotely close to that. And the fact that you guys all walked out unscathed, it's including incredible. that thirty six rack of coors, like <laughs> it's gonna be a good night, boys. Beer's good, you, we're safe. It didn't take long for that thirty six rack to get finished. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have, I can't imagine it would have. A couple uh, road pops on the way back to the house just oh to calm God. the nerves a little bit, take the yeah. edge off. <laughs> Not that oh. I condone that for those listening. No. Um, so, <clears throat> Jaden, tell me about Hunt West. What's mm-hmm. give me kind of the origin story behind that? What what made you kind of go down that path? You know, what? How were you able to develop this and, and all that? So, as I alluded to earlier, um, when I left the farm and left like kind of the home stomping grounds, I had to all of a sudden like learn how to find hunting spots. Right. And I came to Wyoming and, um, and like I was saying earlier, like, uh, Cody Rich in particular really helped me kind of hone in, uh, how to hunt elk. I had a proclivity for hunting mule deer already and, um, listened to a bunch of podcasts, did a bunch of podcast interviews, uh, with him, with, through Cody's rich outdoors stuff and realized like, oh, okay. Like there are some common themes here. And so I started helping friends out who were like asking about how to e-scout for places, how to kind of put together hunting plans. And after I realized some common themes here, like both through the education that I had learned and from other people, and then seeing myself and others put it to the test, I was like, gosh, like I, I actually think that this can work for everybody. And uh, Hunt West was born out of the idea that everyone can have a little bit better hunt and go into each hunt more confidently if you put together a good plan. Um, so I started it about a year ago and helped a couple dozen people out last fall. Uh, and they all had pretty good success. And, and then I realized like, Oh, 
this is actually going to work. So uh, I've continued on with that and help people with their applications and, and get get hunts that kind of align with their skills and their abilities. And now we're launching into the, the game plan season, which is my favorite, where we're sitting down and looking at um, different hunts they've drawn and how to approach them the best. Yeah. So with that, are you kind of coming into the fold like after they've drew their tag or like helping them, you know, I guess, you know, kind of rewind a few months, right? When people are, are putting in applications and they're trying to pick a unit and all that stuff. I mean, what, at what part, I guess, of the the process are, are you kind of really adding that value? For the most part, my specialty lies in helping folks learn how to like find out where to hunt and how to build a good hunting plan. Okay. Um, I have done a lot of hunt uh, applications with people because I think that there is an element of this that like, putting in for the right unit and putting in for the right area, like feeds off of the hunting plan you want to run. Right. Though most of the time when folks get a hold of me, they've already drawn the tag and they're like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. But I personally, you know, it goes back to like my personal philosophy is I have picked out where I want to hunt, how I want to hunt a place, like before I've ever uh, applied for the license or picked up the license myself. So, um, you know, it does start a little bit earlier, ideally, but most of the time it's after somebody has a tag in their pocket. So <clears throat> when you're helping out these individuals, do you find more often than not that it's people who have kind of the same hunting style or want to hunt the same way as you do? Or is it, do you find people coming to you for, for advice, for help that maybe have a completely different hunting style, right? Maybe they don't want to get too far from the truck, or maybe they just want to hunt from the truck, uh, as opposed to, you know, throwing camp on their back, you know, getting, getting in deep, getting away from people. What is, what has been your experience with that? Man, it's kind of been across the board, but importantly, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the style that somebody has or wants to have. It's the fact that most people don't know what their style is yet, or like they don't really, they're working on what they like. That's a good point. And that's the number one thing that I try to like talk to people and, and like tease out is like, Hey, what do you like to do? Like, are you the kind of person who's going to backpack in someplace you love backpacking and that's what you want to do? Or are you someone who's going to kind of have a really nice camp and, and work from the truck or work from, you know, within a half mile or a mile of the, of the vehicle and try to build a game plan based around that. Because I think every one of us is um, looking at different types of media that's out there and thinking that they have to do it that way. Right. But the, God, there's so many ways to skin the cat of Western hunting that um, you can kind of pick and choose um, your own adventure and just because you're seeing one type of thing on social media doesn't mean you have to hunt that specific way. Um, and I think people oftentimes, if they don't know that, they need to be reminded it because, um, yeah, there's just there's a lot of ways that you can approach this whole game. Yeah, and I think you, you make a good point there about like social media and what people tend to see out there and where they tend to see guys be successful. I mean, I look at a guy like Aaron Snyder who's an absolute savage in the woods, right? I mean, I think anyone who kind of pays attention knows that about Aaron. But one of his big things, it seems to be, is like getting very, very deep. I mean, he does a lot of scouting, but he has like an idea where he wants to go. He gets way away from everyone, or at least that's his his plan. And, you know, you get guys from like out east here from the Midwest that think, well, shit, if Snyder can do it, I can do it, right? And they don't realize that, you know, you could try to hike in for a day, 
and try and get as far as you want. Maybe you get six, seven miles in, you know, from the trailhead or from the truck or whatever, but you've exerted literally all the energy that you have for that hunt in the first, you know, 12, 14 hours. And you're left in your tent for the next two days because you just, you can't move your legs. Like you're just completely shot. So I think it's, it's good to, like you said, have an idea, but then also know what your limitations are, because ultimately that's going to determine, you know, how successful you can kind of be is if you know what your body is capable of. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I think that's the number one thing that like, like you're saying, he's a great example. I like him and I like his style. And one of the things that I've come to find out though, is like, you can also be successful doing a different style. Um, like, don't get me wrong. I love the big backcountry hunts. Like there is a time and place for those things. Um, I'm doing one at the end of this month for bears, uh, just cause it's like something I want to do, not because it's particularly successful <laughs> or more successful than any other. Um, but I think that that's the number one thing that people have to address is like, look, like you just have to figure out which, what's your strength. Right. Um, one of my favorite spots to deer hunt is like eight miles from my house. And it's like, you can kind of glass it from the road. And it's, uh, it's definitely, um, not the sexiest, right? Like when you like think about the whole scheme of what's really popular right, right now, um, but gosh, it's fun, you know, like I it's think effective. when you figure things out, yeah. Um, so it just has to, you just have to take into the consideration, like you said, that those, those personal strengths. And now if you're someone who is a CrossFitter or you just are uh, a mega athlete and you're consistently training and like, you know, exactly what your body can and cannot stand in the backcountry, then like, sure, that backcountry, like. Uh, approach is going to be great. Or if you want to learn it, that's awesome. But you just also have to know what your limitations are. Because if you're coming from a couple hundred feet to a couple 10,000 feet, um, it's a different game, man. It's just yeah, a different game. Yeah. Now, with the people that you're helping, <clears throat> are they mostly Western guys who are hunting a new unit or just drew a tag that they hadn't had or are trying, you know, a new species, whether it's elk or mule deer or antelope? you know, spring bear, whatever the case is, or are you getting a lot of guys like me, you know, coming from like the Midwest who draw a tag, call you up, Jaden, this is, you know, this is the tag I got. This is the unit I'm at. You know, this is what I think I want to do, you know, shine, you know, wax poetic here, man. Like, tell me, give me something. Right. Yeah. I think I'm surprised by how many Westerners have hit me up um, because I thought it was mostly going to be Midwest or, you know, at least non-Rocky mountain States. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who, um, for a variety of reasons, are just kind of like, ah, I'm just kind of wandering around. I don't really, I haven't really put much thought into this as to like what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. And um, so it's probably 50 50, actually. And I would have, a year ago when I was starting it, I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, and, you know, like the, the guys from back, uh, back east, like quote unquote back east, folks yeah. who don't live in Rocky Mountain states, it's kind of like, um, I appreciate their approach because they, um, oftentimes are, I think a little bit tim intimidated by the, um, by the Western landscapes. I don't necessarily think you need to be intimidated, but realistic is important. Um, whereas the people with, from the Western, um, you know, background, they sometimes are a little bit more chaotic and they don't have the patience or they don't have the methodology to like, um, 
really go through things with a plan. So it's been an interesting like dichotomy of like these different people doing different things. The Western guys tend to hike way too far and too fast and not be methodical. And then the Eastern guys, like it's really important to encourage people to like, you know, push their comfort zone, but also be smart about how they're doing it. Um, and uh, remind people every step of the way that uh, patience kills the buck or bull. So um, it's not about how far you go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I wonder if going you know, based off what you said there, I wonder if, you know, like guys from, you know, the non-Western states or non-Rocky Mountain states, like, I wonder if that's just like, I think about my approach and, you know, predominantly a whitetail hunter. Mm-hmm. And that's all you know, you're sitting in a tree stand, you're being patient, you're being, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, similarities, um, in, in terms of like tactics and, you know, just general woodsmanship, as you mentioned uh-huh. earlier, but <clears throat> you know, if you're on a Western, if you're on an elk hunt, right, you're, you're hiking, you're glassing, hiking, you're glassing, presumably, right. Just, you know, yep. generically speaking, but you know, if, if you're hunting whitetail during the rut, I mean, you're, climbing into a tree stand, you know, an hour before sunlight and you're sitting there until, you know, half hour, 45 minutes after the sun goes down. So you're in one spot all the time. You're hyper vigilant. Um, you're, you're really paying attention to the kind of the details. And sometimes I wonder if that can kind of play to, you know, someone like myself's advantage, you know, Mm -hmm. going out West and just having a different kind of mindset, you know, taking that, that white tail approach and, kind of redirecting it, I guess, if you will, to, to an elk hunt or, you know, a mule deer hunt or something like that. I think in the little bits I've watched, like Easterners who exactly like you're talking about are really hyper vigilant and are really aware of their wind and like of their approach. Um, the final kind of the, the final steps of getting an animal on the ground seem to come together quicker or come together easier. Um, but getting into the animals might be tougher. And sometimes it's like the inverse when you're looking at someone who's piecing things together, who lives out West. Um, I've got a friend, Matt, who, uh, is he's, I I love hunting with him, but the dude charges, he just like covers ground. (laughs) And it's like, at some level you have to turn on the hypervigilance and like the awareness of the wind and like figuring out the final steps, right? Know your surroundings. Yeah. 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 And it's putting those two things together is where the, the sweet spot is. And finding that sweet spot is really tough. Um, but I think that that's where, yeah, like you're saying, like some of these Eastern guys have some of the best woodsmanship um, that of the hunters who are coming out here. Um, because otherwise, like a lot of uh, uh, Western hunters will just kind of bebop around and like bump into something like, Oh, there's one, you know, yeah. and like, um, that's, uh, not all, especially when you're looking at lower densities of animals, it's like, that's not a very effective way to go. No, can't really hang your hat on that. <clears throat> so, you know, based on your experience, you know, prior to hunt West and, and now getting into it, do you ever find yourself kind of like offering like almost like a, a generic piece of advice for someone who's, who's looking for the advice, like almost like this, I don't want to say hard and fast rule, but like, it's something that you find yourself kind of having the same conversation over and over again with, with everyone that you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, I built a framework for hunt West and I actually, I tested it before I built it. So it didn't come out of thin air. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is like when you're looking at these Western landscapes, most units, most hunt areas, have a similar like mapping there's some private land either in the bottom or the middle elevations and then there's public land at the top 
And the animals are spread out from the low country to the high country at some gradient. Different times of the year, obviously, it's going to change. Right. But when people come to me and they're like, well, I'm not looking for a honey hole. I'm just looking for a place to start. I say, okay, break the unit into like three categories. First, look at the high country. Second, look at some safety areas. Most of the time that's private land, but I'm increasingly finding that sometimes safety areas are like national parks or like even a state border or something like that. And then lastly is like the low country. Like I think a lot of times, especially when we're talking about elk hunting, the low country is getting passed over when there's animals in it and people are just driving up to the big green spot on the map. Um, so I give those people those three things to start their framework of looking at. Um, and I use this example of a Nevada deer hunt that I did a couple of years ago because that's where I really like, I, I had the framework and I was like, all right, let's test this sucker out. And it worked great um, as like a way to just kind of like be methodical and you go to one spot, shoot, there's no deer in the low country. Go to the next spot, shoot, there's no deer around these safety edges that I was looking for. Let's go to the high country. Then you go high and you're like, yep, there they are. That's the kind of stuff I need to hunt. Um, and giving people that kind of like checklist or that just like three-step plan or, or that just approach that they can follow has really helped people not get stuck on like, ah, what do I do now? Like there's no animals here. Um, because inevitably on every single hunt, if you're going into a new place, you've never been before, you never scouted, that's going to happen. Yeah. And you know, like that's gotta be, especially for someone, you know, coming from out of state, wherever that may be, Mm -hmm. you know, they do their, their scouting, you know, their e-scouting, or maybe they're fortunate enough to get some boots on the ground earlier in the year and they say, okay, this is the area we want to focus on. Maybe they have a backup plan. Maybe they don't. But, you know, sign was good. You know, what all indications are like, yeah, we should be trying to hunt this area. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, maybe they run into a bunch of other hunters. Maybe the animals just aren't there. They kind of aren't prepared for it, right? They don't have, you know, a contingency plan B or C or D. They don't have any of those things, right? And then they, you know, potentially waste a day going, shit, what are we going to do? Right. And then kind of haphazardly throwing something together and say, ah, well, maybe we should try over here. Right. Without having uh, kind of that clear direction, like you talked about. And I think that in, in that type of situation, you're right. Inevitably, you're going to come across that period of time on any type of extended hunt where there's going to be nothing's vocal. You're not going to have any sign. You're not going to be able to glass anything up and it's, it's going to, it's going to be hunting right? It's not going to be whatever the case is. Um, no, I like, I like that approach because it, there's, there's comfort in safety or there's safety and comfort. I don't know. It's not like a saying or anything. I was just trying to figure out how to word that, (laughs) but knowing that, okay, if this doesn't work, we can go here. If this doesn't work, we can go here. And if they weren't in the first two spots, they should theoretically be in this third spot. So you have something to, to con- continually fall back on. And I got to believe that that's where a lot of people kind of fall short on their, on their big, you know, out of state hunts or anything like that is just not having enough backup plans, I guess. Yeah. And it also helps you like stay in the right mindset. The fact that like you look at a place and there's nothing there, you can be like, good, check that off. You know, 
Have you ever listened to Jocko Willink? I have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's got this great video and it's this thing he does. It's like, good. You look at every like negative situation and you go, good. Cause that means like <laughs> you can do something else about it, you know? And I actually think that there's an element of that mindset that's really important. Um, you know, there's a ton of people at this trailhead. Good. That means that we're not going there. We're going to go someplace else. Yeah. Um, you know, and like just taking that approach is really helpful and it keeps you in the mindset to like keep going every single day because when you get discouraged and then you just spend all day in the tent, you surely are not going to get, get, you know, reach your goal or have the adventure that you're looking for. Yeah. How often do you get guys who have maybe been, you know, hunting out West for a while, right. And just haven't had any success and, you know, they're, they're trying to think outside the box, right? How can I increase my odds? How can I increase my chances? Um, we'll talk to Jaden, right? We'll, we'll see what he has to offer, see how maybe that is different from the way I've been approaching it, uh, and go from there. Um, I, I guess my question there is a lot of your, your customers there, are they first timers or are they guys who have been at it for a long time and just haven't been seeing the success that they're hoping for? I've had a couple people who were there for, who've been doing it for a long time. One guy in particular, he's just like a busy uh, construction man. Like he runs a construction company and he's like, Hey, so my son drew these tags and I don't have the time to like figure out where we're going. So can you put these things together for me? And I was like, heck yeah, man, I got you. And his son killed two buck deer last year. And I was like, that's awesome. That's great. Besides him, though, like there's a couple of them that I've helped with a little bit in new areas, but most of the time people are pretty new, both either with hunting as a whole or hunting in out west. Um, and that's been really fun because I think it, you get the opportunity um, as someone like me to give people confidence. And um, I feel like half of the half of the fun of having of going out West or just having a hunt in a new place is enjoying it and having like confidence that what you're doing is going to eventually turn out. Um, and if it doesn't, that's fine. Right. Like that's just part of hunting, but, um, it's when people get just like, just get distraught or just get frustrated about the situation that that's when it stops being quite as fun. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, yeah, that goes back to what you mentioned about making sure that, they temper or that their expectations are where they should be as opposed to, Oh yeah, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to kill a bull or I'm going to kill a buck or, you know, whatever the case is. And you just have to almost go in there and go, okay, I'm going to be happy if I, if I encounter deer where I think I should encounter deer or elk. And, you know, if, if you find yourself fortunate enough to get into position to possibly get a shot, like that's got to be, you know, there's some hunters where like, Hey, that's a success, right? Like I was in, I was in the game right? Like I wasn't yeah. on the sidelines. Um, and then obviously closing and, and sealing the deal and punching a tag is, is obviously kind of icing on the cake, I would imagine. Yeah. But the hard part for, you know, guys out East is, you know, you, you bank up five, 10 days worth of vacation, right? You head West, you hop in the truck with some buddies, you go out there and, and you have obviously the expectations, regardless of what you tell yourself, like that, 18 to 26 hour ride out there like we're putting something on the ground right like you're just you're super confident right and and that you should be but 10 days comes and goes you don't get anything on the ground that 18 hour drive home is a lot quieter than it was on the way out there and then you have like a year to stew right and to hope (laughs) that maybe you can go back 
And yeah. but maybe it's like maybe I can't go back for two more years. So now you have to like just marinate in that defeat, you know, knowing that the mountains or the animal won. And from what I understand is it takes guys a lot of time, especially guys from out east or the Midwest, to really get a good handle on Western style hunting, whether it's just understanding the mountains, you know, the, the, the animals and the way they move thermals, you know, all these different things that come with mountain hunting as, as opposed to, you know, like your typical whitetail tree stand hunter. And it's, it's a lot, right? Like you can, you can go out, you know, living in Wyoming there and you can spend a week, you know, hunting in the afternoons or hunting in the mornings and you can acquire the amount of knowledge in a week hunting that it takes me potentially three years to, to really acquire. Right. And I think that's where a lot of maybe guys from, you know, my neck of the woods get discouraged as they go out there, don't have that success, can't get back out there. And either they've forgotten everything that they maybe learned or, you know, they just are defeated and are like, yeah, I'm not going back to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't worth it for me. Right. Look, man, I grew up out West. My dad was an archery elk hunter. My grandpa was an archery elk hunter. I grew up hunting mule deer and elk and doing all the things, running around the woods after school, like causing trouble. It still took me six years to kill my first elk with a bow. Like it is not an easy thing that we're doing, right? Like, and I think that guys from, especially when you're looking at folks from who are coming from out East, you are, your learning curve is so steep, man. Like yeah, it is, it is tough to climb that hill and, um, and it's hard stuff, right? Like, Maybe I'm just a really bad hunter. Don't get me wrong. Like that could <laughs> certainly be half the battle. But the fact of the matter is, like, <laughs> I think people um, try to expect that success is going to come immediately. And um, there's a guy actually that I helped out. Him and his son did a hunt west plan with me last year from Maryland. And they were like, "Hey, this is my first, you know, elk hunt in Colorado. Um, what can I expect? Yada yada." And I like walked him through it, and I was like, "Okay." So let's put together a plan. If you guys like call in an elk, like if you get, if you hear a bugle, that's going to be a great success. And he's like, he had some, uh, physical pro like he had hurt his neck real bad and he wasn't going to end up bow hunting, but his son was going to bow hunt, yada, yada. Um, and then they got rained out one day and long story short, they hunted three of five days, but they heard a screaming bull elk one of those days, like really close. And they called him in. They didn't get a shot. Like they kind of like muffed it right at the very end. But, um, uh, that was like, he was over the moon excited. And I think that adjusting your expectations to being more realistic, like that guy's, he did a great job. His name's Tim. And I'm like, dude, Tim, like, let me know what you need, man. You are on your way to like filling a tag. If you go out and are just excited about that one experience, it's going to keep you coming back, man. Yeah. Um, and it's going to keep you excited about doing it. Um, but if you're out here and you're looking at coming out for five, seven, even nine days a year and trying to fill a tag in archery season every single year, like, dude, you've got a long road to hoe and, um, and, it, and you can't get, discouraged you can't beat yourself up this is a long-term plan um, that yep. you're about to embark on yeah for sure so <clears throat> kind of shifting gears a little bit here uh-huh. I, this feels like almost a rhetorical question but i'm going to ask it anyway how does conservation play into hunt west and and what it is that you're building there with the brand i kind of led this 
conversation off talking about my grandpa and mm-hmm. um it seemed it seems really obvious to me but for most folks they would know if you have a garden or if you're running a farm every single year you fertilize that place and you put something into it cuz you know that at the end of the year you can't just take from the ground that you're running and the ground that's providing for you and i think the same way about hunting and uh, conservation, they like kind of going hand in hand, like conservation is the fertilizer to the hunting we get to do. And, um, that's why it's important to me. It just kind of was always part of, it's part of the gig. Um, if you're not giving back to this place, the wild places, the wildlife that you're chasing, like, um, you know, you got to take care of them before they take care of you and my philosophy. So yeah, it's just kind of baked in. Um, and I make it kind of sound cavalier, but, it certainly, I wish, was um, just part of the DNA of, of, you know, what we do as hunters. Um, because for the most part, uh, we're taking a lot from the ground and we're not always giving a whole lot back to it. So um, I think it's important for that reason. Yeah, no, that's <clears throat> that's very well put because, yeah, a lot of times people don't have that same outlook, right, that they they take and they take and they take, but what are they doing to give back? Right. And it's, that's one of the cool things about 2% is the, the emphasis that they put on conservation, obviously, but that it's, you're not, you know, as a business owner or an individual member, you're not pigeonholed to, to one organization or to one group, right? Like 2% does a great job of like, you know, aligning businesses and individuals with, you know, causes that they care about. I mean, I, say it at the beginning of every friggin' episode that I record, right? Like I have this whole, whole, whole spiel that I talk about with, with 2% kind of their general mission statement and being able to, to recognize that. And one of the things I think is so cool. And I've said this a bunch of times in this podcast is, you know, you have your full-time job, granted it's in conservation, but you know, for someone who, who doesn't, and they start a side business or, you know, a passion project, whatever you want to call it. And Typically, when people start those types of things, it's for extra income, right? Like, oh, maybe I can make some money doing something that I really love. But someone, you know, like yourself is saying, okay, this is something I really love. I really enjoy doing uh, and I can make some extra money at it. But I'm going to go ahead and give, you know, X amount of dollars of that back to conservation. I think that just really speaks volumes to, you know, the type of people that, that own these companies, that run these companies, and, and really where their mindset is when it comes to giving back to wildlife. Yeah, I agree with you, man. It's one of the my favorite things about 2%. It's, it's been 2% as an organization has been something I've followed along for quite a quite some time. And I've always appreciated the idea that, like, we're trying to normalize the fact that, like, this is important to these people who it, it's not just people who work in this business, right? Like, but it's important to the people who appreciate these places and recreate and like try to give back to the, to the things that make us all so stoked in the off season and yeah, and keep us looking forward to uh, different trips and adventures we get to go on. Yeah. I think it's real important that, that we just kind of make it uh kind of a standard operating procedure. Yeah. And what I like about it too, is how many, you know, non, hunting or fishing or outdoor related brands that there are that are 2% certified because whoever owns it, you know, loves to hunt, loves to fish, whatever. And they're like, yeah, we're going to give back to conservation because it's, you know, outside of, you know, whatever his job is or her job is, it's like, it's something that they love to do. So they see the importance of it. And that's, 
normalizing it, like you said, is, is, is what we need to do. And there's a lot of organizations out there that are doing a great job. And I think 2% just helps, helps, you know, regular people put us in contact with them and <clears throat> further, further their mission and, and help support, you know, and, and fight the good fight. No, oh, I totally agree, man. Yeah. It, and like you're saying, it's um, really cool that I know there's a, just a ton of businesses right now who are just like doing this as part of their thing. Um, for instance, and, and this kind of goes back to some of my work that I do nine to five, but, um, like we are the lumber store in town, right. Is real interested in supporting our local work. Right. And, um, at the Wyoming wildlife Federation. And those are the kind of people that's like totally understand that like supporting this community or supporting this cause, like really just feeds back into not just the bottom line, but like into the quality of life that people have who work there or people have who, um, you know, our, our clients or customers there, right? Like it just all is in this perpetual cycle that goes round and round. Um, that's what makes it really fun too. When you're, when you're doing good work as far as like, um, as a conservation organization and working with these people who really care about it, like you said, it just kind of feeds on each other and, and people are really, uh, happy and, and, uh, stoked with the outcome, both <laughs> as a hunter and as what they're seeing on the ground. Yeah. So what are some of the organizations that Hunt West is giving back to? Uh, most recently, I've given back to American Bear Foundation and the Bow Hunters of Wyoming. Um, American Bear Foundation is doing some really good stuff. And uh, I might have mentioned it earlier on, but I, I really do enjoy bear hunting a lot. Um, I'm picking up on that. Yeah, it's it's a, <laughs> it's a really big passion of mine. And it's funny, actually, now I'm remembering what I talked about earlier. You know, my dad got me into bear hunting when I was like, in junior high, like him and I went on our first bear trip. Um, and, uh, it's just something that's been kind of grown since then. And, um, so American bear foundation, uh, does a lot of really good research. Uh, it's ran by a guy named Joe Condilis. Uh, and, uh, he's really paving the way for figuring out bear populations, uh, bear dynamics and like how we as hunters impact those, uh, populations and how we maybe can increase some harvest in some places, or maybe we can back off in some places and, and maintain a really healthy balance, just like we do with all of our ungulates. Um, and then I'm a pretty, uh, avid archer. I, I rifle hunt quite a bit. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I really like the bow hunters of Wyoming. Um, they're a group that I've gotten really involved with and, uh, they give a lot of money, um, on the ground for habitat projects here in Wyoming. And they also like are furthering, uh, bow hunting as an opportunity in the state. Um, I just told someone the other day, uh, we do not have a single archery specific deer hunt in the state of Wyoming. It's all really? just like part of the, any legal weapon structure. Yeah. For tags. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things that we have a lot of room to grow and, uh, I really would like to see some more opportunity in this state for that. And that state's work or that group is working on that quite a bit. Um, so yeah, those are the two, I think right off the top of my head. Uh, I can't really say too much about the Wyoming wildlife Federation since they, uh, since they keep the lights on in my house. So that's not yeah, really that's fair. fair. No, that's, <laughs> that's all right. Um, Jaden, before I let you get out of here, man, I know you mentioned, uh, a bear hunt that you have at the end of this month coming up one that you're, you're pretty excited about, but, you know, looking, you know, ahead a few months, is there, you got any big hunts kind of lined up this fall that you, mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't want to necessarily say bucket list type hunts, but ones that you're, you're really looking forward to. 
Did you know I have one? I didn't. Okay. I'm assuming you do then. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy enough, and we haven't talked about her a whole lot, but uh, Jess Johnson is incredibly involved with conservation. She helps friend start of the Artemis, podcast, friend of the podcast, my significant other. Mm. Um, her and okay. I, her and I both drew you bighorn sheep tags this year. Really? So her and I are both going on these bighorn sheep hunt on a bighorn sheep hunt in the same unit together. Um, and I think we're going to really try to tell the story about the fact that like this you bighorn sheep hunt is actually a hunt for conservation. We're not just out here because we like to fill sheep tags. Granted, it is probably one of the only opportunities, if not the only opportunity I'll ever have to go on a sheep hunt. Um, what we're doing is trying to keep a cap kind of on a population that is over its objective. And um, I'm really excited for that. It's going to be in the backcountry. It's going to be with a bow and it's going to be in August. <laughs> so oh. it's going to have grizzly bears and it's going to have high country. Um, it's really just like everything that makes like a really adventurous hunt um, and a cool story. So um, nah. I'm excited for that. How long is that is that bighorn sheep season or, or how long do you have to try to fill that tag? It's quite a while. They're real liberal and and again the the purpose of that though is because they're wanting to get harvest on these sheep that they offer these tags right. for. Um so it's August 1st to 31st with a bow and then uh September 10th to October 14th with a rifle. Okay. Um but being like we want to be out there when the weather's nice. We're both archers. We're going to go yeah. hard in the archery season. And yeah, for sure. I'm really excited for that. No, that's awesome, man. I think <clears throat> looking in the uh, crystal ball here, trying to tell the future, I think probably get both of you guys on after the hunt, hopefully a successful hunt, and we can just just share your story, right? Just give you guys an outlet and kind of talk about everything that went into it leading up to it, you know, you know why, um, you know, managing – that the herd and the numbers is so important. Um, yeah, I think that would be a great episode to get you guys both on here. That sounds great, man. Sounds like we have a to be continued, uh, yeah. on the end of this thing. This we is got a cliffhanger guys, cliffhanger here. <laughs> um, well, Jaden, I really appreciate the time, man. It was great speaking with you and, uh, look forward to, uh, speaking to you guys again soon. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to hop on here. This has been super fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. Have yourself a good one. All right. You too. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Another episode in the books. Thank you again to Jaden for joining me today and uh, <clears throat> telling me and you more about Hunt West and, and a little bit about his background as well. Uh, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands, including Hunt West, uh, that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content that uh, is filling up your timelines and your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you really enjoyed the episode. Uh, stay tuned. More great ones coming, I assure you. Uh, but until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. you.